This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, a few years back, amid all the calls on college campuses for safe spaces and against microaggressions, came a clarion blast of truth from a university president. And it came in the form of a short blog post from Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And in this post, as you might remember, Dr. Piper most eloquently conveyed what so many Americans are feeling. He reminded these whining, entitled students that when you go off to college, you're not attending a daycare or a safe space. You're there to get an education. And now Dr. Piper is out with a new book expounding on this theme. It is called appropriately, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. And Dr. Piper, it is just wonderful to welcome you back. How are you today? I'm doing great, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored. Well, I'm honored to have you here. I love the post at the time. I love the book. This all started with a student you talked about who was offended. I don't know if people even remember what the incident was. Offended by a sermon at chapel there at Oklahoma Wesleyan on 1 Corinthians 13. Now, how in the world can you be offended by the chapter of love? That's just beyond (laughs) my understanding. Well, and as you know, that's what led to my weekly blog and my weekly op-ed that I had been writing for some 10 years or so. And I jokingly said when I wrote those pieces over the last decade, about five people read them and three people cared. On that given week, when I decided to respond to this young man who felt like he had been singled out and therefore was offended by a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, I decided that something needed to be said. So I essentially said, as you know, look, this is not a time to be coddled. This is a time for you to be confronted. A good education is one that challenges you, not one that makes you feel comfortable. So if you expect us to issue trigger warnings before altar calls, and if you expect us to uh, pat you on the head when you feel guilty for not showing enough love when we give you a sermon on love, you're in the wrong place. This is a university. It's not a daycare. We expect you to grow up and mature. We're not going to sit around and coddle you and make you feel good about your immaturity. You know, Janet, there was a time in the university life where we all recognized the obvious common sense of this. None of us ever grow. None of us have ever grown. You haven't. I haven't. I would challenge anybody to identify a point in time in their life when they grew and matured when it didn't involve some dissonance, some discomfort, and a challenge. Good education should challenge you and make you feel that you aren't quite there yet. Bad education is going to make you feel comfortable and make you feel like complaining and whining and blaming everybody else. Yeah. That's what the point of this book is about, and that was the point of the article. This has become really a generational change, I would say, because this kind of stuff didn't even go on when I was in college, and it really is kind of a recent thing that they would you know, gather together with their teddy bears and their safe spaces and all the rest. What do you think led to this? Because there, you're right, there was a time when we understood what education was to be, and we understood that maturity was a good goal, that we really wanted to get there. We didn't want to stay permanently in a state of uh, delayed adolescence? Well, excuse me, I'm sorry. 
I would go back to Richard Weaver's 1948 seminal work titled Ideas Have Consequences. What was his point? Ideas have consequences. And when you teach good ideas, you get good culture, good community, good kids, good government, good church, good corporations. When you teach bad ideas, you get the opposite. Bad community, bad government, bad corporations, and bad kids. And when you teach self-absorption and narcissism, Decade after decade, when you teach what I call the whateverism of our culture, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you. How many times have you heard our kids say that? When you teach these broken ideas, you're going to get broken people behaving badly in these campus greens and on these college campuses. When you see the results, you know, Barack Obama's pastor was right. Jeremiah Wright was right. The chickens are coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. When you teach bad ideas, you're going to get the consequences that play themselves out in our particular moment and time in this culture. And that's what's happening. The colleges have sold their soul. They've sold their soul to postmodern constructivism rather than the pursuit of truth. And the consequences of abandoning that truth is there's no such thing as truth any longer. It's just power. It's just privilege. It's ideological fascism rather than academic freedom. Absolutely. And what's interesting, I don't even know what kind of moniker you would put on it now. When postmodernism sort of grew and developed like in a Petri dish, now what you have is a reversal of morality. Those who once said your truth is your truth and it's fine for you, my truth is mine and it's fine for me, are now themselves becoming the moral enforcers, the Sharia law police of the modern America that we're seeing on college campuses. What is it that tipped them over from being in this postmodern mindset to saying all of a sudden you have an obligation, Dr. Piper, to create a safe space for me. It's about me and my views. You have to not dissent and you have to get in line with what I want you to do. Well, it's the premise of the book again, daycare, the devastating consequences of abandoning truth. When we abandon truth, when we deny that it exists, when we, pres- when we presume to be as God, the Genesis story of the fall of man, the original sin is that we will be as God. We don't need God any longer to tell us what's right or wrong or good or evil. We can define it ourselves, thank you. Right. We will define what's true and what's false. We will define even what's male and female. We will define everything. And when that type of power is given to man, it never ends well. G.K. Chesterton told us that when you get rid of the big laws of God, you don't get liberty, but rather thousands of little laws. In other words, when we can't live by the ten simple laws that God gave us, and Jesus narrowed it down to two, when we can't live by that simple, short list of laws, we don't get liberty. We get thousands of man-made little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum, and it's always predicated on power rather than the simple principles that set us free. Jesus told us, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Without truth, Chesterton told us again, that if you want freedom, you've got to build fences. Without the fence of truth, you always get anarchy, and anarchy always results in tyranny. That's the lesson of history. Yep, you're really, really on the money there. That's very, very well said. So let's talk a little bit about the purpose of education, because I know you're very passionate about this. This is something that drives you at Oklahoma Wesleyan. How do you explain to your students or to anybody who is listening and wonders, what is an education for? What do you think it is? Education should be very, very simple. It's about the pursuit of truth. It's not about the celebration of opinions. Here's an anecdote. I've told my students at graduation a number of times, today when you graduate and walk across this podium, I'll shake your hand and I'll pat you on the back and I'm going to hand you a diploma. And it's going to say, congratulations, you've got a degree in opinions. (laughs) And there's a pregnant pause in the room. You can hear a pin drop. They're wondering what I'm saying. And then I follow that up and I say, that's absurd. What I just suggested 
is nonsense. Clearly, you came here to get more than an opinion. I'm not going to celebrate your opinion today, and you shouldn't celebrate mine. Hopefully, you learned something about nursing and accounting and psychology and sociology. Hopefully, you come away from this institution with some measure of truth above and beyond what you had when you started. And if you didn't, and you're going to go administer medication because you're a nurse on the basis of your opinion, stay away from me. You're dangerous. And likewise, if you're going to design an airplane on the basis of your opinion, tell me which one it is. It won't fly. Opinions always live, lead to bondage and slavery, but Jesus told us you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Amen. Pol Pot and Mao and Robespierre and Chavez and Hitler and Mussolini all had opinions, and it didn't end well. Truth sets us free. The goal of good education should be the excellence, the excellence and the exceptional nature of truth, not dumbing it down to what's common and average, but to pursue the eternal immutable principles that are endowed to us by our creator. Right. So, so when you're detaching education from a Christian foundation, what kind of education are you really offering? A lousy one. You're, allow, you're, you're offering an education that's grounded in your opinions rather than something that's grounded in the unchangeable nature of what our, our founding documents, if you even venture outside the Bible, you're going to see that referred to repeatedly Documents, self-evident truths. Right. Self-evident truths, common sense, natural law, the Judeo-Christian ethic and revelation is the very foundation for human freedom. And without that, we will not be a free people. We won't enjoy liberty. We will digress into the thousands of little laws that are imposed upon us by someone else. That is so, so true. Well, we're going to go to a very quick break. When we come back, more with Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. His book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. 
The Ministry of Preborn invites you to share your pro-life message through sharing heartbeats. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her preborn baby. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes toward saving babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-2229, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Not a daycare. The devastating consequences of abandoning truth. The new book from Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And he created a real firestorm, rightly so. And I applaud him. Standing ovation for Dr. Piper on that wonderful blog post from a couple years back where he talked about the fact that you, you don't have a safe space here on our campus. There are no trigger warnings. You're here to get an education, to build your character. And it has to be built on the foundation of God's unchanging truth. What sorts of challenges, Dr. Piper, I'm curious, do you face as a university president in the current atmosphere? Because one of the reasons that your post went so viral is because you stood out as somebody who was very different from most university presidents. How do you maintain your principles on campus where you are? It all goes back to mission. I've said many times at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, it's not about men, it's not about money, it's about mission. If you have clarity and mission and you, have, and you know where you're going and you make that clear to others, the men and the money will follow. But if there is no vision, the people perish. And without a mission, nobody is going to care about who you are or what you're doing. At Oklahoma Wesleyan University, we're very clear and very bold and unapologetic about being grounded in the truth of Christ and the truth of Scripture. We have four pillars at our institution, which are the four pillars of our mission statement, and they are the primacy of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, the priority of Scripture, Scripture is the Word of God, the pursuit of truth, truth is given by God, it's not made up by you or me, and then the fourth one is the practice of wisdom, holiness and sanctification and obedience is demanded by God, it is not optional. You put those four things together, we're very clear, we're very distinct, and we're grounded in the objectivity of God's revealed truth as the ultimate goal of the Academy, rather than the celebration of your opinion or mine. I don't care what your opinion is, Janet, and you shouldn't care what my opinion is. At the end of the day, truth needs to be the referee that judges the debate, and the irony is you and I will enjoy greater liberty as the result of that truth being the judge than we would otherwise. That's why the Liberal Arts Academy was defined as liberal. If you go back a thousand years ago, let's say to Oxford, and the founding of the Liberal Arts Institution, what was it for? to educate a free man and a free woman, a free people, a free culture, to educate in liberty, to liberate people. And that's why the word liberal was attached to the academy. And the irony today is, as an outspoken conservative, I'm actually more classically liberal than my left-of-center counterpart. It's true. That's true. Absolutely. So now, what about the chapter? You've got a lot to say in the book about the corrupted Christian colleges and universities. We, we are seeing a growing intolerance against Christians, but the flip side of that is you're seeing once Christian colleges or colleges that still have a Christian affiliation, 
losing their own battle on preserving truth. What are your concerns in that regard? Well, honestly, I would go back to the evangelical movement. The evangelical movement, if you will, has lost the, in great measure, not all, but in great measure, has lost its uh, commitment, has lost its determination to defend the evangel, the good news, the objective story of Jesus Christ, the reality and the exclusive nature of the Christian message. How many evangelical Christian universities today believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? How many of them will defend the deity of Jesus Christ? How many of them will boldly and unapologetically stand in the market square of ideas to conserve the time-tested truths of God, rather than to celebrate the fact that people are tearing them down? And my answer to that is there are very few left. There's very little spine, if you will, in the leadership of many of our Christian colleges. And I would encourage parents, when you go to look at a Christian college, ask two basic questions, and it'll tell you whether or not you should spend your money to send your kid there. Ask them, what's your view of Scripture? And then ask them, what's your view of truth? And if they say Scripture is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, it's the Word of God, the revelation of God to man, good answer. If they don't, the reason they didn't answer you is not because they didn't understand your questions. They don't want to let you know what they truly believe. And with regard to truth, is truth an objective revelation of God, or is it a postmodern construct? Is it, is it a given, an immutable fact, or is it a malleable opinion of man? Again, if they say that it's an objective reality, good answer. If they don't, don't send your kid there. Right. Well, one of the big problems that we're seeing right now, as you all know, Dr. Piper, is the increased not only marginalization of Christians in general, but the biggest issue, I think, on the table is over human sexuality, whether or not homosexuality is a protected class. We see how all these fights have gone, the redefinition of marriage and so forth. It seems that that is going to be a continuing issue. And a lot of Christians are wondering, will that be an issue that will derail our ability to stand in the public square for truth? In other words, are we on the way out if we stand for the truth in a culture like ours? Where do you think that trajectory is headed? In a very negative way. Many Christian colleges today are refusing to take a stand in the face of a government that's telling us that we need to, that we must, we must dumb down the definition of a human being to nothing but the sum total of what he or she is inclined to do. Now stop and think about it. If your inclinations define your human identity, then we're in a very bad situation, because there are a lot of things you're inclined to do, and I'm inclined to do, that you should not do. I'm inclined to lie. I'm inclined to steal. I'm inclined to cheat. I would much rather look over your shoulder and copy your answers than spend the time and effort to study for the test myself. But I know I shouldn't, so my identity is not in that inclination. And why in the world would we drink the Kool-Aid and buy the lie that our identity is in our sexual appetites? We're much bigger than that. We're better than that. The Christian definition, the Judeo-Christian, the biblical definition of humanity is the Imago Dei, the image of God, not the Imago Dog. We're not animals that have to subscribe (laughs) and comply with every instinct and appetite. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that's the attack that we're seeing in our own day is the attack on what is man. I mean, it's an attack on God when you start attacking things like the male-female binary. That's ultimately attack on the image of God and God's creation of his image in our uh, male and female binary. But what about this you know, we're moving more and more into insanity. We have women marrying themselves and marrying buildings, and we have, you know, death with dignity movements and all the rest. As you see this moral collapse, what do you think is important for for people who are concerned about preserving Christian education to begin to do wherever they are? 
Well, first of all, you need to have some courage and speak boldly. For example, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, when I received the letter from the Department of Education and the Office of Civil Rights demanding, requiring, that I begin providing transgender accommodations on my campus, I sent them a letter and said, no. Yes. I suggested this. We believe that women are real. We believe that women are biological facts. And I refuse to insult the female by suggesting that she's nothing but the feelings of a dysphoric male. I can't comply with Title IX, which requires me to give women equal access to athletics, for example, if you, federal government, demand that I stop honoring the biological fact of the female. We still, we still teach science here. We believe that women are real. And do you know what happened, Janet? What? I got an exemption. I remember In that. In other words, <laughs> we had the courage to step forward and say, no, this is nonsense. It insults the woman to do what you're suggesting. It makes it impossible for me to comply with Title IX if I do what you say. Therefore, my answer is no. And we did, again, I repeat myself, get an exemption. So people need to have courage and recognize that their worldview actually works, that you're making sense. And it's very difficult for these people to respond to you when you argue from the context of what's real rather than these fabrications and these feelings and these um, opinions that are being constructed by the government right now. That's perfect. That's how everybody ought to be reacting. I'm curious what kind of pushback, if any, you've received after your blog post went viral from your own educational community. Did students come and talk to you about it? Did parents call you up? What was the overall reaction to your saying very boldly and a Christian university, it's not a daycare? How did they react? Well, the people within the Oklahoma Wesleyan community were thrilled. And we actually did a statistical analysis of the 3.5 million people that clicked on this story that we're aware of. 97% of the comments were positive and 3% were negative. Great. So I would argue that the overwhelming majority of the people that read it, secular or Christian, were saying, thank you, good for you, it needed to be said. We did get some malcontents and some opponents that felt that it was too harsh or for whatever their concern was. But when they said it was too harsh, I basically felt like you've made my point with me without me having to say much. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to coddle your student and make him feel comfortable. You know, there's a great quote here, and I think I'm on task by mentioning this. Um, C.S. Lewis says of the great lion Aslan, Chronicles of Narnia, yes. that he is not safe, but he's good. Right. And I'll paraphrase that for education. The great line of the liberal arts, the great line of the university of the ivory tower is not supposed to be safe, but it is supposed to be good. There's a huge difference between goodness and safety. And I choose to be good as opposed to safe. You have to. What helps you in terms of what goes on in the home before your students get there? That's part of the problem, clearly, that we have a family structure that in large measure is falling apart like it hasn't before in the United States. But what would you say to Christian families on how to prepare your student before the student comes to the college campus and starts demanding safe spaces? What should mom and dad be doing? Well, first of all, stop coddling. Uh, Recognize that your students need to grow up. Uh, Don't buy them a plane ticket to fly back home if they're bored or lonely or if they're homesick or if they don't like their roommate. Recognize that college is a place. Choose wisely. Choose a Christian institution that supports your values rather than tears them down. Choose an institution that believes in truth rather than disparages it. But once you do that, let your kid grow up. Don't bail them out. Stop coddling uh, your son or your daughter because that will not result in growth. It'll only result in stagnation. I think that's probably one of the greatest challenges of our culture today. The helicopter parenting mentality is, in fact, real, and we need to just stop. 
yeah. need to recognize that they, that our children cannot mature if they're constantly looking to us for the safety rather than the goodness that comes through a good education. That is really good advice. Exactly, because that mom and dad train up a child the way he should go, and we ought to be ready to launch our children and to not hover and make things safe for them all the time. They'll never never be able to cope with the world as it actually is unless we're pushing them toward maturity. Uh, Built on a Christian foundation. Wonderful book, Not a Daycare. Dr. Everett Piper with us. Dr. Piper, so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Janet. Blessings to you. God bless you. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. For years, we have heard various Bible and prophecy experts tell us that America is in decline, that it is headed for judgment and fall, even that God will destroy our country by fire. And with threats of nuclear war newly in the headlines, a lot of Christians are turning back to the Bible and wondering what is to become of America. The Bible never mentions the United States, and so we can conclude various things based on that. But none of us know the details for certain. So we're going to examine the question today with Jeff Kinley, who is out with a new book, The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. So good to have you here, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. Janet, good to be with you today. So what catches your attention, just out of curiosity, in the headlines these days from a Bible prophecy perspective about the threats to America or even God's judgment of America? What kinds of things are jumping out at you as you're looking around? Well, there's so many things uh, out there, Janet. I mean, I think one of the biggest things I look at internally is just our declining spirituality in our country because we have become more and more godless as time has gone on. And we're way past taking prayer out of the schools. I mean, we're at the point where people are no longer attending church like they used to. In fact, for the first time in our nation's history, less than 50% of Americans attend any kind of church. So people are identifying more and more as atheistic, agnostic, and, and so a part of that just simply reflects on our society, and when you take God out of the picture, then what, what's left is just mankind and his ideas and his morals, and we're seeing the decay of those before our very eyes. Well, we are, and in my lifetime, I can say, and I'm sure you would concur with this, or I think you would concur with this, I have gone from seeing things like abortion on demand being legalized by the Supreme Court, and then we had the redefinition of marriage in 2015. Now we're to a point, and I think a lot of Christians think this, that we are glorifying in what is evil, and not so much even allowing what is evil under the auspices of the law, but glorifying and really rejoicing in evil in many parts of our country. This is what I think facilitates a lot of Christians' discussions about whether or not God is judging us or will judge us. How do you think we ought to think about these things? Well, I believe you're exactly right. And the question that every Christian has to ask him or herself is, what does God say about America and her condition right now? And what you've just talked about, Janet, we see right in Romans chapter 1, we see this gradual, incremental 
devolution in our morality from a rejection of God as creator to a reinvention of religion to a sexual revolution, a homosexual revolution. And it gets to the end of chapter 1, Janet, where exactly as you described, it says, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So we're not just allowing sin. We're not just funding sin. We are celebrating sin in the streets of America. And as Isaiah said many centuries ago, woe to them who call evil good and good evil. But we are exactly where the Bible says we would be. Right. Now, when you look at America over and against other countries in the world today, there are many people who sometimes will say, well, why do we say that America would be the subject of God's judgment when you look at countries around the world that are way worse? Does that have something to do with the fact of our founding, of the fact that Christians were instrumental in founding this country, that the Bible is really the blueprint for our country? How do you see America's guilt in relationship to the countries around the world who also have guilt? Well, there's, there's several principles involved here, I think, and one of them is the fact that to whom much has been given, much is required. Yeah. Uh, America has been exposed to a, a great deal of biblical truth from her very beginning and all throughout uh, her development and, and birth as a nation. And so <clears throat> we have had the truth preached to us. Uh, there's a church on every corner, and America really has been saturated in the gospel. So we are without excuse on that regard. And then from really a broader perspective, as it involves us and other nations. I mean, God really does have a relationship with Gentile nations, and that relationship involves the national character and a moral conscience of a nation. And we see throughout Scripture how God judges Gentile nations based upon those things. We look at Noah's civilization. We look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Jesus even says in Matthew 25, he will judge the nations one day. So there is a responsibility before God to respond to creation, to respond to the light that's been given to us. And of course, America has been given more than any other nation. It's so true. And that's that's really key, I think, when you talk about to whom much has been given, much is required. And we, we... It's funny because in retrospect, we're only 200 plus years old when you look at a lot of countries that have been around. They're ancient. But in our country, we've only been here. It's been an unprecedented experiment, as many people point out, a constitutional republic like ours. Is it possible to retain a republic with such a solid Christian foundation over the long haul when you look at history? Well, as you look at history, you'll see that it is very difficult, and whether uh, Christianity sometimes becomes more institutionalized, as we saw in England, uh, which produces really just a government uh, marriage to the church, and that really never works very well. Uh, Living in a republic where there's freedom of choice, where there's great liberty, as America has, I think is really the best way to go. However, even said that, having said that, the government's responsibility is not to impose Christianity on, on people. It's the church's responsibility to expose Christianity to the people. And so that's where the church has really dropped the ball in this whole thing. Well, that's right. So how do you look at our country when you are evaluating the end times? We have Christ in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, talking about the signs of the end of the age and so forth. Where do you think we may be along that line when when we are looking at these extreme threats? We have an international jihadist threat to our country that's already been exhibited. We have nuclear threats now from North Korea and other nations are rattling their sabers at us. What point do you think we're at right now when you look at Scripture? Well, I think it's very late in the game, in my opinion, Janet, because we see the 
the stage being set for the book of Revelation, and, I, and the rapture hasn't even happened yet. And so many things that, are, that we see happening in Revelation, we see some of those things being put into place right now, the birth of Israel and the, the rebuilding of the temple and those places being put in set, globalization, so many things happening in our world, in our country. But I think as you look at Scripture, and you have to ask yourself, as you look at Bible prophecy, where is America in this whole thing? Why are we not specifically mentioned? And as you just said, I mean, it has something to do with the fact that we may eventually reach this point where America is no longer a world player. Now, how could that possibly happen? And I outlined four different ways of possible scenarios about why America is no longer a, a global power, a superpower in the end times. And, and one of it is the fact that we could collapse financially. You know, the average Christian, the average American really doesn't think about that, but up to 49% of American households, Janet, are experiencing, or rather receiving, some sort of government benefit. Right. And with a $20 trillion plus debt load and with more and more people uh, immigrating in the country and just, you know, really just leeching off the government, I mean, we can't continue with this. But the other thing, as you mentioned, was just the threat of, of a terror attack or a series of terror attacks. I mean... The FBI is investigating right now over 900 different jihad-related activities in the United States, and that's in every single state of our union. And so there are many different things that could happen, North Korea with a nuclear strike, Russia with a nuclear strike, and not to sound the alarm or create panic or anything like that, but these are real scenarios that thinking Americans and Christians need to consider. Right. And another scenario that you mentioned in the book is America will collapse morally. Are we not already there? Or are we still well, still still moving worse? I don't know. Well, you know, it's amazing. It, it's it's like a person that that is being consumed by cancer, but they're still walking around, still breathing. I really do believe that when Jesus Christ returns for His bride, it will be the really the final nail in America's moral coffin. And when all the light, all the salt is removed, and all the influence for good is taken out, there'll be nothing left behind. And unfortunately just like the Hurricane Harvey is coming through and, and, and breaking these floodgates and these levels, levees, the same thing, I believe, is going to happen morally after the rapture. Well, that's interesting. So to what extent can it get worse? I know that's a depressing subject, but a lot of people think we're as bad as it can be. Well, you know, Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians that the restrainer is what is currently holding back this, this flood, these floods of evil. And we look around us, and yes, the world is very, very dark, but and at the same time, the Holy Spirit, through His people, through the Church, really is restraining uh, the forces of evil. I mean, total depravity. We've not seen what total depravity can do when it's completely unchecked. There still are people fighting for what is good and just and right in the world today, especially in the Church. When we're removed, only God knows how bad it's going to get. I believe it's going to get like it was in the days of Noah. Goodness. Well, Jeff Kinley's with us, The End of America, his book, and we'll come back on Janet Meffer today, picking up the conversation. Stay with us. story company comes i still believe based on the real life true story of chart topping singer jeremy camp i still believe reminds us that amidst life storms true hope can be found in christ he chose to walk into the fire with her that's what love is if one person's life is changed by what i go through it will all be worth it i still believe starring kj appa Britt robertson shania twain and gary sinise rated pg parental guidance suggested in theaters march 13th more information is at i still believe 
Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City, and take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 1st. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Jeff Kinley, author of The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. And I think it's pretty obvious that we are a country in crisis when you've seen so much that has gone on in the last decade alone. And Jeff, you think about what's been going on recently where you have all this anarchy in our cities and uprisings and burning things and assaulting people and hurting people and shutting down free speech. Is this not also a sign of the times? Well, it is. And again, in in Romans chapter 1, it predicts that that when the floodgates of evil are open, that the people will be haters of God, they'll be arrogant, they'll be inventors of evil. Uh, Paul tells us in Timothy that in the last days that that, that men will be lovers of self, they'll be promoters of violence. So I really think what we're seeing is just the depravity of man expressing its hatred towards authority, uh, towards God, towards what God has established, and they're really just living out uh, that vitriol hatred of God and really of the church too, because when you start preaching the gospel to those people, they become even more violent and angry. Yeah, so true. I think of what the Bible says about men will become inventors of evil. Yes. And and we encounter that every day. If you just follow the headlines on the internet, it, something new and horrible. And I think, I don't need to know about that. It's just getting worse and worse. And things that I couldn't have ever imagined are now becoming things that people want to promote. And it's incredible. How do you think, because I know you addressed this in the book, Jeff, how do you think that our founders would have responded to the America of today? What would they say about it, do you think? Well, I I think, obviously, they would be very, very shocked. Uh, They wouldn't recognize the country that they helped uh, found on moral principles out of Scripture, on basic basic decency, on uh, caring for your fellow man, on justice and and honor and those type of things that America has been known for uh, for centuries. I don't think they would recognize this country. And I think that's part of why Christians really need to to wake up, uh, Janet, and realize. And the reason I wrote this book is because I love my country uh, very dearly. My firstborn son is a West Point grad. He's a captain in the Army. And, and we're a patriotic family, as many Christians are. And so there is a sense of, wow, this is my country. I need to do something about it. 
I agree with you. And you know what troubles me sometimes is hearing Christians talk about patriotism being something that's unbiblical. That seems to be a little bit of a trend right now where they say, oh, well, we can't love. Loving America means that you don't love the Lord more. I don't agree with that. I don't know why you can't love the Lord the most and then also love and mourn for your own country. No, and that's really the priority right there is to be a pursuer of God first and a patriot second. But as you said, there's nothing at all morally wrong with with being a strong patriot. Because what are you doing? You're supporting the good things about America, the things that really are good and godly and the things for which we were founded. Yeah, that's right. You talk about heaven's perspective on the United States, Jeff. What do you think the Lord's perspective on us actually is? Well, I believe it, it grieves God's heart, as it did in the days of Noah, but I think at the same time, uh, God is a wrathful God. Uh, he is a just God. Uh, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there comes a time where, where grace and patience uh, will come to an end, and God's wrath will fall, and I believe it's going to fall on our country. I believe it already is falling on our country uh, through the way that He has allowed us to pursue our own devices and, and reap really, the, the uh, unfortunately, the, the bad benefits of our choices. And so God does love the people in America. He does love when a country is honoring him. But at the same time, uh, God is a wrathful God. He's a just God. And uh, I believe the day of wrath is coming. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because you do have a section on understanding God's wrath. And you talk about the different manifestations of God's wrath. Clearly, we see God's wrath on display in eternal hell, where people do go who do not repent and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. In what sense is God's wrath on display at the moment, or at what point will the wrath become even more evident? Well, I think two primary ways. One is just what I refer to as harvest wrath, or the law of of sowing and reaping, is that when we have sown to the flesh, the Bible says we'll reap according to the flesh. And so we've really been getting back not only what we've been putting into sin and pursuing sin, but also for the church who has really stood back and allowed a lot of this to happen. The second way I believe, Janet, is is what we do see in Romans 1, and, and there is a a judicial giving over of a people group uh, to themselves. We see it three times in Romans uh, chapter 1, where it says God gave them over three times. And this is sort of a a banging of the gavel, if you will, uh, when we have basically said to God, we don't want you, we don't need you, we don't want any of your input or your laws or your morality in our lives. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you over to your own desires, to this sexual revolution. And, of course, what we see now, and we see it in Romans 126, is this homosexual revolution that's really taking our country with this insanity of transgenderism and how we're now really bowing down to that in the schools and on campuses and in the government. And and so there are many other ways that, um, that we've done this, but it's just an insanity. And that's what sin does. Sin makes us all stupid and it causes us to believe things that aren't true. And so I believe God is giving us over in this sort of wrath to ourselves, and we're experiencing that right now in our country. You know what it makes me think of is Nebuchadnezzar down on all fours and eating mm-hmm. the grass, and he's out of his mind, and then when he looks up to heaven, his sanity returns. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's the thing. And the great thing about Nebuchadnezzar is that he came, Bible says he came to his senses. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, I recognize that, that the Lord is the, uh, the only sovereign in heaven. And I think that's, that's the call 
to America. And, and that's a very unpopular call to repent. Yes. But yet that's what it's going to take for America uh, to get back on her feet again and to be honored by God and for perhaps God to tarry his coming and his judgment is for America to turn back to the Lord. It's essential. You had mentioned the church's role a few minutes ago, Jeff, and I'm curious to ask you about this. I have heard no shortage of Christians commenting. You you see all these great preachers of history, and even 50 years ago, you had these thundering voices from the pulpit. Where are they now? Are we living out this famine in the land that Amos talks about? What about the role of the church right now and the need for God's people and God's preachers to, to really come in the pulpit and proclaim the word of God and the gospel unapologetically. Why are we not seeing more of a fire in the pulpit right now, given where we are? Well, unfortunately, I think one reason is because uh, churches right now are suffering in terms of attendance, and many pastors are simply afraid of losing followers or congregants if they preach a message of wrath or a message of repentance. Not to say all preachers are doing that, but but this is a day when we are facing, we, we need Spurgeons again. Amen. We need Luthers and yep. Calvins. Yep. We need Wesleys. We need those who are Moody's, people like that who are going to herald the truth of God from the pulpit. And Jenny, it has to come from there. It has to begin because I meet so many Christians that are doctrinally deficient don't have any idea what's going on in the world. There's no discernment about what's happening in terms of the end times, and it's because they've never been taught. And in fact, I have a list in the book, um, 10 Reasons Why Pastors Don't Preach on the End Times and on Prophecy, and it really boils down to the fact that it's a difficult subject, and it's a hard subject to, to tell people about. And so it has to come from the church. The church must wake up and realize where she, where she is in history and to be able to respond to God and to calibrate her heart anew to him. And that's the only way things are going to change. Well, this is interesting. If you could in, imagine a scenario in which the church really did fall on its own face before the Lord and repent and return to our first love and enthusiastically preach the word of God from the pulpits and get out into the world and preach the gospel to our neighbors and friends and really really, really have a spiritual life to us that maybe has been waning in the last few decades. Could that stave off God's judgment? What is the role of the church that can be played now in what is inevitable or what many people see as inevitable uh, as far as judgment for America? Could it stop it? Well, this, this is what we do know. There are things we do know and things we don't know. But we do know that in the first century, there was a band of believers, the, the first century church, and they were armed with nothing more than a changed heart and a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And under the oppressive rule of the Roman government and a world that was hostile to their faith, they turned history on its end. They changed history. I think today in the church we are so dependent upon so many other things that entertainment and technology and and fun gatherings and self-help messages and all these things, we need to strip those things away, Janet, and get back to the message that God has called us to give this world. And yes, it will be confrontational, and yes, it will divide people, but at the same time, I believe it will purify the church and make her more ready for that return of Christ. And yes, it could hasten hasten the day of the Lord, but at the same time, it could cause God to be more patient towards this world and towards our country. But Christians are the answer. We are the salt. 
we are the light. We certainly are. And I just think that's so convicting what you say, Jeff, because there are thankfully many Christians I've talked to who do feel this way. And they say, I just want to live my life and get right with the Lord and be faithful to him and really do all the things that Christ is calling me to do as his disciples, staying on that narrow way and just not accepting anything less than that, despite what's going on in the culture around us. We've got to check out the book, The End of America, Bible Prophecy in a Country in Crisis. Jeff Kinley spending time with us. So good to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Janet. Thank you. All right. God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us here on Janet Mefford today. JanetMefford.com, our website. We'll see you there. This hour of Janet Mefford today was brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com.